Nobody wants to hear about God's wrath. Let me read those verses again, if we could. Romans chapter, eight, uh, chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Those people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And the, verse 32. Though, uh, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are not being hindered by electronics. We pray that the word of God would go forth, that we would not only be ready to preach the word in season and out of season, but that we would be hearers of the word and not simply doers. I pray that you will strengthen the saints to do the work of the ministry in the days that lie before us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In our text, we have the words, suppressing the truth. Suppressing the truth. That is what they're doing. They are suppressing the truth. Now, ask this question as an application right at the beginning. Are you suppressing the truth? Am I? Well, it gets you thinking a little bit when it becomes a personal application. The truth about what? What is it that we are inclined as human beings to suppress? And the text tells us we suppress the truth about theos, about God. In a sense, we tend to deplatform God. We cancel him out of many of our venues. Now, throughout time, you can always find pockets of people who have wanted to advance the cause of Jesus Christ. You know, there were a few people that got on that ship called the Mayflower. They wanted to advance Christianity. There were a few other people that started Harvard and Yale, and if you look at their charters, it was to advance Christianity. If you look at the, at the 13 original colonies, you're going to find people that gathered together and they banded a government to be, to be able to advance Christian purposes. Oh, yes, throughout time there have been pockets. But the text of Scripture today tells us that the majority of people want to suppress the truth about God. They're guilty of two things, or they're, they're, they're prone to do these two things. If you have your text, you can see at the end of verse 18, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And it's really interesting. It's not only their unrighteousness, but it's also their, uh, their wickedness. It's the ungodliness and their wickedness. These two things they are guilty of. Now, when you look at the ungodliness, uh, that is a, a phrase um, several of the commentators will tell you, is they basically live as if there is no God. Okay? They, they, they basically get up in the morning, they go through life, and there is no awareness of a supernatural. You know, there was a guy, Carl Sagan, that said, this is all there ever is. We're just stardust. There's nothing ever going to be any different. That's what it means to be ungodly, is to be godless. But then what happens when your actions are actually godless, they become wicked. And that word is not common in our vernacular anymore. We tend not to say things are wicked unless you went through that era where everything was wicked. But it wasn't meant as a biblical sense of being un ungodly or unrighteous. The, uh, the Greek word here has to do with the opposite 
of righteous. They're wicked. Their, their activity is against God. Now, in, in Luke chapter 17, I can tell you that Jesus isn't surprised by this reality. When you look around, Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, that's the way it's going to be when the Son of Man returns. In other words, at the end of days, when he's going to come back, what does he expect to find when you look around to the normal population around this globe? People are going to be eating and drinking and doing their, their pleasures as they did during Noah's day. Why? Because they function as if there is no accountability. There is no one that is going to hold them back. They basically say, this is the way it was yesterday and the week before and two weeks before that, and this will be the way tomorrow and the next day. The only difference is I'll die, but this is all there is. They don't fear standing before a judgment seat. They don't even believe that there is a God. Why do they get on this path, this broad way that leads to destruction, Matthew 7, 13? Why do people want to get on the, that, that path of, of ease that's sloped down to doing whatever seems right in your own eyes? Dr. Boyce ended up saying, the ungodly thinking always leads to this ungodly or wicked behavior. They do it because when they don't acknowledge God anymore, then they do whatever seems right as if they were God. R.C. Sproul ends up just calling them uh, functional atheists. Uh, it is not due to the intellectual cause. In other words, it's not because they're dumb. He argues that it is because they are moral and physically or physiologically uh, prone to it. He said, there is so much evidence to point people to God, but rational beings have a natural anti-God about them, an antithope uh, against God. They don't have a passion towards him. They have a passion to run away from him. It's like a magnet. Instead of coming together, you know, you can flip the one magnet over and they repulse. They don't want to stay together. As we look at this text about God's wrath today, we will see an emotional explanation. I want to be able to get into it to be able to explain what it means for God to have wrath. Secondly, we are going to do a quick historical analysis. I want you to see that this is not something new that Paul just discovered, that God has wrath. And thirdly, we're going to make some textual application. We're only at the beginning of the book of Romans. Do you know how many times the idea of wrath permeates this 16-chapter book? You may not have seen all of these things, so I hope it'll be weaved together and it'll strengthen us to be able to see the beauty of his great salvation because of God's wrath. So the first point is it's the revelation of the wrath of Theos. Now, I, I picked up this term, the wrath of Theos, uh, because it triggered a memory of a movie, The Wrath of Khan. Some of you that are Trekkies, you, you know that that was one of the biggest villains in that whole universe, which had a lot of different villains but the wrath of Khan. And uh, you didn't want to get into his way because he was the, one of the most wicked that were out there. Well, what does it mean for our God to be full of wrath? The wrath of the true theos. Well, I want to give this a little bit of an emotion to us. Is Does God really have wrath? Okay, you don't even have to say it. The answer is yes. God has wrath. Now, when I tell you about God being full of wrath, 
that doesn't resonate very well. We would all like to say that God is full of love. God is really nice, isn't he? God would never do anything bad for us. He would never send something upon us that would make our lives more miserable. Would he? Would he? This whole idea of the wrath of theos is foreign to us. It brings about uh, feelings and, and, and things that we don't want to wrestle, or that we don't like. The word orge in the Greek, it is a powerful thing. And from the book of Hebrews, you can see that God is, has a ton of wrath. His wrath is stored up and it's going to be poured out on many. According to our text, if you have verse 18 in front of you, you can see there's three things that he mentions about the wrath of God. Not only is it from God or it's God's, it's possessed by God. God owns this wrath. This is a part of his image. This is a part of his character. But secondly, that this wrath is unveiled or the word is revealed. God is, is letting us see it. He's pulling back the curtain and he says, everybody look. Everybody look. This is at the beginning of Romans. This is one of the, 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 the doors that he opens up wide. And he says, I want you to stare at it. I want you to see it with both eyes. I want you to, to, to gather the depths of, of what God is like. God has wrath and he's pouring it out. It is revealed, and then where does it come from? The idea of this unveiling or this, this, this uh, revealing is that the word from heaven has come down, and now the time to reveal it is making known. In other words, I believe that this wrath is being, uh, this, this unveiling is being done at the, at the leadership of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul has received special training. He's had a three years of time with the Lord. He spent all this insight, and, and he was a smart guy to begin with, having studied the law as a Pharisee. He was familiar with so much. But now the unveiling is taking place, and from heaven the command comes to him to make sure that people see the wrath of God. It is from heaven that God has given this command that it needs to be revealed, and the wrath itself is going to be initiated by the Father in heaven, and it is going to be coming and poured out to people on this earth. The wrath of God is God's. The wrath of God is being revealed or unveiled, and the wrath is coming from heaven, and it is by God's design. And if you look, it's coming to a theater near you. It's coming. The wrath of God is showing up on earth. But does it go on every human being? Can you help me out? If you, if you look at, at how Paul reveals this, he says the wrath of God is coming from heaven, but it's not against all the people, especially the ones that he just spoke about in the first 16 verses. It's coming up upon other people. And so there is a distinguishing between this group and this group. And I'm not big into identity politics, but I want you to know that God says there are two groups. There are those who are with the righteousness of Christ and those who are without it. And when you, when you start to realize that those are the only two categories that really matter, when you see it there, he says the wrath of God that's coming down from heaven is going to be poured out on the people, on, and the word all, ponti, it is not just on some of them, but on every one of them that fit these two categories that I mentioned that are godless and that have wickedness. 
these godless wicked people, they do something that we'll be explaining in the chapter. They will suppress what is true about God. They'll bury it. They'll, they'll give a funeral. They'll say God is dead, and then they'll go on and, and, and live life as if there never was a God. Once you realize this, then you know that this is what the wrath of God is being poured out. It's on a targeted particular group. For God is not pouring it on everybody. In fact, you can finish the verse with me from John 3.16. For God so loved the world, or several people in the world, uh, that if anybody is resting in what Jesus did, then you'll not perish. You'll have this everlasting communion with God. So yes, there is some love that God has extended to people on this earth, but the wrath of God is being poured out on some people on this earth too. You, you need to see that clear distinction that is in the text. The people that are suppressing the truth, they have nothing to do with Jesus. Because in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. If they're suppressing the truth, they are suppressing the idea that this Jesus character who walked on this earth literally, that was put on a cross, they just look at him and say, what a fool. What a dead fool. Because, of course, they don't believe that people rise from the dead, so they don't really have a whole lot of stock in this Jesus character. Anyway, uh, it's a good curse word for most. If you love the truth, then you're not going to be the recipient of God's wrath. And that's one of the things. I want to take you to 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and following, and just read it for you. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest, or it was revealed, it was unveiled among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he first loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you know the word propitiation is, is a word that has to deal with the satisfaction of wrath? So you see that this is the emotional explanation that I wanted you to grasp at the beginning, is that in order for us to say that God's wrath is being poured out, I want you to understand that the only way that there is wrath is because there is love. God just doesn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed and say, man, you guys are dumb. Now, we may do that. The reason why God has wrath to pour out is because he cherishes righteousness. He cherishes beauty. He cherishes things that are lovely, pure, just, and of good report. And the fact is, is that when the only reason he pours out his wrath on anyone is because those people do not value what he has said is valued. You see, the reason why God has wrath is because he loves the truth. And often I've said, we've had this debate, and you guys can think through it a little bit more, but I always want to say, yes, God is love, and God loves people, but God loves truth. You can't have just God loves people, period, and that's it. 
God loves people and God loves truth. And so that's why I can also say that the wrath of God is poured out on some people because when God loves the truth, people that don't have the truth are going to get that wrath. Now you're understanding the emotional thing. Now we're created in God's image and we understand this because a lot of us already have wrath. Whether we call it anger or wrath or whatever, uh, whatever flavor that we're going to bring it, we often are going through this world and we're not satisfied with what's going on. Why? Because we love it to be better than it is. We want everybody to say it the right way. We want everybody to be at time. We want everyone to be able to, to get it. And when they don't, then we get frustrated, we get angry, we get perplexed. And sometimes we go to use our own understanding to try to fix the situation. We try to wrestle with you with words or sometimes we just withdraw from you and we stay at a greater distance. But the love of Christ compels us. You see, when we become Christians, all things become new. And we want to do things that we before probably wouldn't have wanted to do. To seek reconciliation. To be able to love one another. Or as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, as much as is possible, live at peace with those in this world and especially those that you go to worship with. Seems strange that he would have to say that last phrase. But we love that harmony. We love that unity that we have in Jesus Christ. Now that's the emotional explanation that God has wrath because God loves truth. And if you don't have the truth, then the wrath of God is poured out on you because you're godless and you're wicked and you suppress the truth. Does that make sense? Now, the second point is, is the fact that this is not something new with Paul. If you look at the second point of this uh, sermon, you're going to en end up finding out that the revelation of, of the wrath of Theos has a historical component, a historical analysis, I like to say. God's timing in the writing of this doctrinal epistle. Okay, you're going to see God's timing in several ways. First, in the writing of the epistle. In verse 11, he says, I now want to come to you. In verse 13, he says, I've been hindered from coming to you now. I am so eager to come. In verse 16, he says, I have good news for you. I'm so excited about it. It will not disappoint. Because in verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of to tell you about it right now. There's something that is new that the Apostle Paul has that he wants to share. In other words, the timing of revealing this message about the wrath of Theon, the wrath of, of Theos, of God, is that Paul is eager to tell the people in Rome about it. This is not something he's trying to hide. This is something that's a part of the now time. And if you go into Romans chapter 5, you can also say now be, being justified by, by faith, we, we move forward. It's now. There's something that has changed that has brought this to light. And the apostle has is, is been gifted from heaven to say, get this word out about the wrath of God that's being revealed. God's timing in revealing this is in the context of God's Old Testament wrath. That Paul typically would reach had some familiarity with the Old Testament. And I wanted to just do a quick walkthrough. Those of you that are familiar with your Bibles, you're going to say, oh yeah, the light bulb will go on and on and on. For those that you haven't, I want to encourage you to read the word. Let's start with the book of Genesis with Adam. Did God have any wrath towards Adam? Well, not at the beginning. 
There was a calmness. They would meet under the trees and the coolness of the breeze. And oh, how sweet it was to fellowship with God. But then when sin entered into the world, when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and they fell from their position of innocence, when they understood what sin was, might I add, by experience, not just by theory. They knew what sin was because they just broke God's word. God told them, don't do it, and they did it. Then they knew that they had broken what God told them to do. And the next thing you know is the wrath of God is being poured out. And they are kicked out of Eden, the rejection from staying in the garden. And they were forced out. And God put an angel there with a flaming sword and said, you are not welcomed back. The wrath of God also came during Noah's day. Many of you, when you, you heard about the Old Testament, you jump right there to, to, Roman, or to Genesis 6 through 9, where God's wrath was poured out. I think a couple of our, uh, Jesse and his wife just went out and saw the, the life-size picture of the ark. And you have to be inside the ark. Well, let me tell you, the wrath of God was being poured out in this world. Uh, my dad ended up giving me a book from Henry Morris and estimated that there were a billion people on the earth at the time. The wrath of God sent down the rains from the heavens above and from the waters below, and it covered the face of the earth so that every mountain peak was even covered. And, and one billion people died. The wrath of God was poured out. The wrath of God also came during Abraham's time as well as others, but Abraham and Lot, do you remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Abraham was there making a deal with the angels. Hey, if there's 50, what about if there's, and he got all the way down, if there's 10 righteous people in that city, will you spare it? Because he knew that his nephew was down there. But there weren't even 10 righteous people. They were godless and they were wicked. And they received the wrath of God as fire and brimstone came falling down, destroying that once great city. How about with Moses and with Joshua? Let me start with Moses. There was a, a cry of the people under bondage there in Egypt. You know, the people of God, two million of them were already there. And they're wanting deliverance. They want to be freed from a tyranny of, a, of an oppressive government. I think that's a universal plea. But the plagues came. And can you imagine that 10th plague? It doesn't matter where you're at. The death angel from God is going to come and the wrath of God is going to be poured out on the firstborn and every, everybody's firstborn was going to die. The wrath of God also came upon that generation that left Kadesh Barnea who listened to the 10 spies. You know about the wrath of God. I swore in my wrath that they will not enter into their rest. They won't enter into the promised land. And during those 38 years of wandering, yes, they had food enough and they had shoes that didn't wear out and they had a pillar for shade and a pillar for light, but they all died. Some of them had the ground swallow them up. Some of them had snakes bite them. It was a total removal of that generation. I went to Joshua and took you to Jericho. God comes, he marches these people into the promised land. And guess what? The wrath of God comes down on the Canaanites. Their sin had, had been like fomenting like a, a, a slow cooker. 
uh, and it had gotten worse and worse and worse. And after four centuries, after 400 years, their sin had gotten to such a degree of heinousness that God gave a command to Joshua, go in there and wipe them all out. The wrath of God was being enacted by the soldiers of Joshua's army. The wrath of God is seen in the cycles of the judges. The wrath of God was seen in in the ungodly kings and how it ultimately came to the abandonment of the ten northern tribes. they, They were taken into captivity and many of us don't even know if they still exist. They were assimilated. And the two southern tribes, they were sent into exile. And that's when you have Jeremiah's account as he wept the, the elites from the covenant community being taken to a foreign territory to be indoctrinated. Ezekiel 36, So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols which with they had defiled it. Now, I sound pretty morbid, don't I? Going through the Old Testament and telling you about the wrath of God, giving you a little bit of an analysis that this wrath has been there over and over. But you know where the greatest wrath of God was poured out? Was it in the Old Testament? The wrath of God was 100% poured out in the New Testament on Golgotha's hill. When Jesus was hoisted up, the righteous one for the unrighteous. My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? As the full wrath of the Father is poured out on the Son. Jesus. Jesus understood what the wrath of God was like. Because he alone took it. He had pleaded with the Father, if this cup could pass from me, I'd like it not to be so. But Jesus knew that it wasn't the cat of nine tails that whipped him 39 times. It wasn't the weight of the cross. And it wasn't the the people who had once shouted, Hosanna, now shouting, crucify, crucify. And it wasn't the fact that he had just been betrayed by one of the 12 that had walked with him for three years. It wasn't all of those things that are just demoralizing to us. It was the wrath of the Father being poured out on the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. You see, God still has wrath to pour out. Those of you that study the book of Revelation, you're puzzled at all the bowls and all the different things that are going to be poured out. The suffering that is yet on the horizon. I just wanted to give you a little analysis about this wrath. But it comes into application in the third point, which is the revelation of the wrath of Theos in the text. If you open up your Bibles, you're going to see in Romans chapter uh, 1, we have the first introduction to the wrath of God. I'm going to read you through the ten illustrations of the wrath that Paul brings. And so when you see them in this book, I hope that you'll get the big picture of what he's doing. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and against unrighteousness of men. Who suppress the truth. Now, if you go to Romans chapter 2, the next chapter, just a few verses beyond us, but because of your hard and impertinent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
In other words, you know that there's some more wrath that's coming. If you go to Romans chapter 2, verse 8, he further elaborates, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. In other words, you've given yourself over to this wickedness. You don't want to do what's righteous anymore. You want to do like, like what, they, what he's going to explain in chapter 1, the sexual liberty. You just want to do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it. He says, but for those of you who are self-seeking and you do not obey God's truth, but you obey your wicked ways, there will be wrath. And he adds, and even fury. Verse chapter 3, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Is it true that God is unrighteous to inflict this wrath? I've already said that emotionally, God loves truth. And that's why he pours out wrath on those who suppress the truth. In Romans chapter 4, as we're doing the Romans road, but dealing it with wrath. In Romans 4, verse 15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. He says, once you see God's ways, when you see what God has revealed in his law, in the Ten Commandments, and we put it before you every, every second Sunday, we list the ten. And every third Sunday, we list the summary of the Ten Commandments. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and, and, your, and, your, and everything. With everything you've got. And then he says, secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. You see, once you have God's law, then you know this is the way it's supposed to be done. And if you don't do it, the Bible says, for this law, it brings wrath upon you because you don't do it. If you go to Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. You see, you catch on the now, the, new, the newness of this. Now, having been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Who is the him? It's Jesus. Do you see when we, by special revelation, we can interpret this. We know that it's because of what Jesus did who took on the wrath of God. Now we're saved from the wrath of God. Romans chapter 9, verse 22, kind of brings a few things together. It kind of like a, is weaving it. He says, but what if God... Desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, which is exactly what Romans 1 says. Remember Romans 1? That the power of God and salvation is going to be this gospel. For in the gospel, a righteousness is being revealed. And this righteousness exposes the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. And that's why the wrath of God now is revealed upon those people without that righteousness. And now he says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, in other words, this is part of the gospel presentation, he has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now this gets a little bit hard for some of us to get. He's giving us this what if that God is going to bring about wrath because he's doing something even bigger than just pouring out wrath. He's showing us his patience. In Romans 12, verse 19. Beloved, now he's writing to Christians. He's just told them to present their bodies a living sacrifice. He says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. In other words, now the wrath of God is not on us. says, don't take it on yourself. Let God take care of it because God's wrath is going to actually meet the target. Don't take it to yourself. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I'll take care of it. 
I'll do justice. Do you really trust God to do justice? Or do you take it into your own hands? Verse chapter 13, verse 4, he says, hey, let me explain a little further. This is the chapter on, on governments, right? Uh, chapter 13, submit to the government, work with the government, and those kind of things. And then he explains that the wrath of God is actually being implemented by a righteous government. Verse 4, for he is God's servant for you for good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. In other words, there's wrath coming. Be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he, that is government, a righteous government, is the servant of God. It is an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And the next verse, verse 5, is where he wraps up. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of your conscience. Now, in the ten times that we see this in the text, I want to just summarize it for you this, that, that the wrath of God is a theme that Paul is not ashamed of. He's not ashamed to talk about a God who is going to bring justice. He's not ashamed to tell you that <clears throat> you may think everybody gets away with their <coughs> everything, but they're not. That's why I bring us to the application question for our sermon. What are we supposed to do about this wrath? How are we to respond? Well, some of us might be afraid. Oh, no. Oh, no. He's going to get me. Some of us might be dismissive. Ah, that was 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote it. Don't you know that we're living in the postmodern era? Don't you know that that patriarchy stuff, that all that um, religious stuff, that was maybe good then, but it's passe now. It's old news. We just dismiss it. Now, some might respond, yeah, he's going to get them. Now, that's only probably on the people that have wronged you. Or some of you might feel that way, like when there is, like the Supreme Court makes a ruling that's anti-biblical, and you just sit there, God, do something now at that level. Don't take them out, but change their minds. Shine some light. Because of the change ushered in by the Messiah, whose substitution accomplished salvation, we actually do want God's wrath to be spoken about. We want people to know that there is a hell because a hell is a place where God's wrath is going to be experienced and the only thing that hell, hell does not have any grace. You just get to deal with the holiness of God. And that's not a great thing when you are unholy, when we're unrighteous. Now, some of you might respond with a yawn. <sighs> Here we go again. Pastors whipping out all that theological jargon with all that fancy vocabulary and that intellectual teaching and, the, uh, and that eloquence of trying to explain the wrath of God. Listen, this is not all about impressing you. It is like Jonathan Edwards did many years ago in 1741. Let me just summarize a little of what he preached. Thank you. Sinners in the hands of an angry God preached on July 8th the preaching of this sermon was the catalyst for the first great awakening. 
He said a few points that I wanted to highlight as I read through it. God may cast wicked men into hell at any given moment. Just think about that for a moment. How many of you are guaranteed 70 years? You're not. Jonathan Edwards went on in the sermon. The wicked deserve to be cast into hell. It's not just that they have a choice. They're going there now because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We'll get in that in Romans chapter 3. Divine justice does not prevent God from destroying the wicked at any moment. Jonathan Edwards went on to say, the wicked at this moment suffer under God's condemnation to hell. If you are not saved, guess what? It's only by grace that you're still here. It's called mercy. You haven't got what you deserved. Number four, the wicked on earth at this very moment suffer a sample of the torments of hell. The wicked must not think simply because they are not physically in hell that God is not at this very moment as angry with them as he is with those who he is now tormenting in hell. In other words, if you deserve hell, the people that are already dealing with hell, who's better off? God's wrath is still upon you as it's upon them, but there's mercy that's been extended to us while we still have life. At any moment, God shall permit him, Satan, stands ready to fall upon the wicked and to seize them at his own, as his own. If it were not for God's restraints, there are in the souls of wicked men hellish principles reigning which presently would kindle and flame out in hell fire. You can read a little bit of that in Romans 7, the things that we do. Simply because there are not enough visible means of death before them at any given moment, the wicked should not feel as if they're still secure. And this is why he said they're like dangling over a pauldron, a hot cauldron of, of, of stuff, only by a, a spider's web. All that the wicked men may say to do, um, all that wicked men may do to save themselves from hell's pains shall afford them nothing if they don't have Christ. While he preached this sermon, guess what was happening in the congregation? They got a healthy dose of the wrath of God. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. There was moaning in the congregation. I imagine it was like, Preacher, you're going too long. No, I don't think they were doing that. I think that they were actually saying, No, no. I know I'm a sinner because I know my own heart. I know my own soul. Just like you do. You know it better than anybody else. Except God. When he preached this sermon, it had a major effect. It did. As you go forth from the message today, I want to ask you, are you afraid of God? Paul is spending a lot of time about God, about theos. And I want you to know that if you have a God that is not full of wrath, a God who doesn't deal with justice, then you're not dealing with the God of the Bible. But it is such a beautiful thing to know that this God of wrath is not going to be pouring that wrath on you and me. Paul is going to go to great extremes in chapter 5 and in chapter 8, there is therefore no condemnation from that angry God. Therefore, being at peace with the angry God, the God who loves truth, therefore being at peace with him, 
I'm just wanting you to know that that's why John 3.16 makes sense. We have everlasting life because there is no more condemnation. The wrath of God has been passed over us. And I wanted to finish with this happiness of going through the historical analysis that if you go back to Adam and Eve and they were kicked out of the garden, guess what? They weren't annihilated. God gave them coats to cover. And he gave them hope in the gospel. There's going to be one born of Adam and Eve that he's going to take your place. When you go back to look at the next one with Noah, when God poured out his wrath and killed a billion souls, guess what he had? Grace to the souls that were on the ark. Imagine as you guys stood in the ark, God took care of those eight souls who were probably pretty good sinners themselves, but they did trust him. In God. If I went back through and said, look at Abraham and look at Lot. Well, well, God brought the fire and brimstone down on the city, but he actually sent angels in there and said, hey, hey, hey Lot, get out of here. Get your kids out of here. And they all got out of there, all four of them. Well, three of them. Lot's wife loved Sodom. She looked back, and that was how she stayed in that position as a pillar of salt. But the grace of God to save three of them. I could go back through the whole thing and tell you about how when God brought about the judgment during Moses' day and the, and the death angel came by, praise God it wasn't for all of the kids, it was only for the firstborn. And praise God that even if you were a firstborn, if you had a believer that would put the blood posts on the top and on the sides and the lentils, then the death angel would pass over you because the grace of God does not bring justice when justice has already been met. There was forgiveness of sin. And if I went through and I took you through some of the other ones where you find that, that when, when Joshua was fighting Jericho, it was amazing that everybody died except that one girl who was known as a harlot. Did I get that right? God extended grace to a wicked, sinning woman like that? And to all of her household? And the scarlet cord was out her, outside of her window as a reminder to all that this was the grace of God. I can go back through, but I want you to know that the place that I want to stop is on Calvary's mountain. When the wrath of God was poured out in ultimate fullness. And did it hit you? Did it hit me? No. While we were yet dead in sins and trespasses, Christ took it for us. He drank the cup of the Father's wrath so that it would not be drunk by us. Brothers and sisters, as we leave today, I don't want you to feel fear. I want you to feel the love of God. The love of God that would save you and me, that would save us from what we deserve. You're going to see that this God is worth knowing about. The wrath of God is the foundation for the salvation that he brings. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the hope in the midst of the despair. I thank you that the Apostle Paul was so eager to go to Rome and tell this message about God. 
The fact that God is not just a teddy bear that you can squeeze. God is not just some nice guy who looks good on commercials that we would vote for. But God is holy, holy, holy. And he loves the truth. And his mercy is extended as he chooses. Oh, Lord, how wonderful it is that you have extended that mercy and grace to us. That you have, in your providence, designed it that the gospel should reach us where we are. And that we would emotionally understand that what we deserve is hell. And we deserve to be hoisted up on that cross and pay for our own sins. But what we get is your love. With a substitute that was willing to do that. Greater love could not have been shown except that he laid down his life for us. We thank you for this great news, this gospel, in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, let us receive the offering. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the gifts that you have blessed us with as we bring our tithes and offerings, whether by being put in these baskets in the worship service or in the boxes, or whether the giving is online. We thank you, O Lord, for the bounty and the blessings, and we pray that you will multiply the effectiveness of these gifts to the end, that we might be able to be as eager as Paul and share the good message, not only that you are wrathful upon sin, but that you are merciful and gracious towards those whom you love. We thank you for these offerings in Jesus' name. Amen.